you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Live from Miami Beach at the Fontainebleau, this is Fast Money. It is day two of our special coverage of the iConnections Global Alts Conference. I'm Melissa Lee, joined here on set by Dan Nathan and Guy Dami. We've got a big show for you on tap tonight. They made big money on the big short. Now four of the original traders will join us to unveil their big bets for this year. A must-see reunion coming up. Plus, the heads of Fortress and Oak Tree will be along to talk private credit, the economy, and more ahead of the Fed decision. And later, beyond obesity, we'll hear from a VC legend, Alan Patrikoff, and a biotech all-star, Jim Mellon, on their push to help people live longer and better lives. we got a jam-packed hour ahead, but we start off with a full slate of earnings that have crossed just within the past hour from big tech to big coffee. We're digging into all the numbers. Full team coverage here. Steve Kovac on Microsoft, Christina Parts on AMD, Kate Rogers on Starbucks. We start off with Deidre Bosa on Alphabet near right now after hours lows after seeing a drop in ad sales. Debo. Hey, Mel. Well, no surprise here. Generative AI, the focus of the call. CEO Sundar Pichai weaving it into Alphabet's different businesses from search to cloud to subscription. Light, though, on specifics. And that is what the street is looking for. He said that Gemini Ultra, their most advanced version of their latest large language model, he said it's, quote, coming soon. There were no numbers, really not much color either on early uptake or other versions or expectations for Ultra. Now, Chief Business Officer Philip Schindler, he did provide some optimism on how Gen AI can drive Google ads. He said that early tests show advertisers are building higher quality search campaigns with less effort using Gemini. But that hasn't been enough to help search this past quarter. And Wall Street is really focused on that broader advertising number, which came in light now, Melissa, the prepared remarks are still going. They should be ending soon. Ruth Poor at the CFO speaking. And then we will get into Q&A. I will be listening. Hopefully, we hear some more details on that generative AI strategy and monetization in particular. So we'll come back if we hear anything good. Back to you. All right, Deidre, thank you. Deidre Bosa on shares of Alphabet, again, down 5% right now. Meta shares, by the way, are down by more than 1% in sympathy here. What would you make of this quarter? Slight miss on ad revenue for Google, which is the only thing that I can sort of take away in terms of why the stock is lower, other than the fact that we can pull a chart up. This was the high today that we made, the same how we made in November of 2021. But what's fascinating is, going through all the releases as we're doing, I thought Google might have been one of the better ones out of the bunch, yet it's reacting the worst. We saw that uh, a couple months ago as well, Guy, what's that thing that your grandma used to say to you? She used little to call guy. you a little guy, yeah. but she used little to say, guy, if you yeah, have yeah. nothing good to say, don't say it. Don't I say it. Well, we'll stop for a second. I said some nice things just now. No, yeah, I know. Keep silent. But what I'm saying is, what, what did Debo say about what they had to say about Gen AI? And when you think about Google, I, I listen, I think universally people are like, pretty comfortable on valuation relative to, let's say, Microsoft and some of the other ways that you were going to play Gen AI in the public markets. The problem is, is that they don't have a product right now that is humming the way that, say, like Microsoft does. So, I mean, again, you're not going to get a lot more detail. The stock just rallied 13% into the print. They didn't give you what you needed to do. And so you're going to take a step back on the valuation. It's just not that interesting right here, especially when you consider that Gemini launch that they had and then going back a year to that Bard launch. They're not delivering on what 
that I guess investors need to see right now. They've got to really climb out of the trench in terms of convincing Wall Street that they are uh, an AI story. They've got a product that's monetizable, and right now that's that's what Wall Street wants. That's what it wants, but not listen. Google can live standalone on their own two feet sure. in terms of what they're, and this is the stock again, 148 down to 83, back to 148. So you've had a huge run over the last year and a half, two years, and valuation has not been stretched like some of these other names. But if people are waiting for the AI genie to come out of the bottle, it's not going to be in the form of Google. But in terms specifically of advertising, Guy had mentioned it, it was fine. It wasn't as healthy as what Wall Street had expected. Right. So what is sort of the, you know, the read through for well, Meta? Well, listen, let's go back a month or two since October we heard from some of these digital ad-based models about like the war in Gaza and, and, and obviously the, the terrorist attack and what that meant. They, they, there was some talk about like weak ad yeah. environment. So like, might we see that out of Meta? I mean, people are pretty geeked up about Meta into their print, you know, on Thursday. But uh, again, you know, I, I just think that we're probably, you want to pay attention to some of those sorts of things. Ad, digital ads in particular mm -hmm. are sort of cyclical. The other thing is that ad business. I mean, this is one of the risks about Gen AI, exactly. uh, you know, over there at Microsoft or some of these other folks that are basically harnessing the technology better. Let's get to Microsoft now. That stock is down 1% after a revenue and earnings beats. Azure revenue up 30%. Steve Kovacs got more on these results. Steve. Yeah, Mel, you want to talk about monetizing AI? That's Microsoft. Microsoft doing it right here with that beat on the top and bottom lines. But more interesting, what the other numbers are telling us about the AI story here. You have Azure growth. That is a beat, 30% versus expectations of 27.5%. And here's the real kicker here. Microsoft says six point of that is coming from AI services. That's stuff like OpenAI running on the cloud, uh, on the Azure cloud specifically. And it's a second beat in a row showing growth is re-accelerating for Azure Cloud. Next, take a look at Office 365 growth. And on the commercial side, well, that's up 17%. The big question, how much of that is due to sales of Copilot? That's the AI assistant. They started selling to big businesses last fall, and they opened it up to even more folks here in January. Guys, wait for the call at 530, especially for any caller or commentary about those Copilot sales how much of that contributed to 365 plus guidance for the current quarter. We usually get that towards the end of the hour. Mel, hopefully I can sneak it into that show for you. Yep. Steve, thank you. Steve Kovac again. Guidance to come. And also, you know, whatever they say about Copilot and AI, that's going to be sort of qualitative. We're not going to get actual numbers or expectations. So we want to hear about demand and uptake and things like that. Yeah, I think it's going to be unimpressive. And, and again, oh. I mean, we, we won't know until they come out and they say it, but the stock has just rallied 13% in what feels like a straight line off of the lows this month. It's rallied 30% since late September. That's a trillion dollars in market cap. They will have to blow the doors off of guidance and their commentary around this in my opinion, to keep this stock going higher. So again, this is an unobstructed move to new all-time highs. It's the largest market cap company in the world. I just don't think they're going to be able to deliver the sort of guidance that will justify this valuation and this move over the last few weeks. August was a $315 stock. Steve just mentioned that. You think about, I understand that Azure growth was better, but this whole run to the upside was basically predicated on that growth coming in where it did, if not better than that. So I want to wait for the call. I get it. But to your point, Dan, not only that run, but the run since this time 
last year when I think it was a $223 stock. But this also puts a huge fine point on what Amazon has to say on Thursday. But when you think about what Steve just mentioned, okay, so Azure and, and their outperformance they're seeing there, I mean, there's folks that are obviously renting that cloud storage to get access to those sorts of products, right? And if Amazon, whose growth is down at like low teens right now mm -hmm. at AWS, they are the market share leader, right. but they're losing share to Google, to Microsoft, and to some of the other players. So that to me leads me to Thursday again. All right, let's get to uh, AMD now. Shares are down around 3% after reporting minutes ago. Christina Parsonevelis joins us now with more on the big uh, earnings here. Christina. Well, the stock first reacting negatively to the lighter Q1 revenue guidance, but coming back ever so slightly on the slightly more bullish 2024 outlook for AMD's new GPU chip, which rivals NVIDIA. What we're seeing, let's just go over Q4 really quickly. Data center revenue fell in line with estimates with AMD saying it was a record quarter as they continue to steal market share, presumably from Intel. And then you can see on your screen, client was a missed gaming beat embedded in line. But what investors care about is Q1 guidance. AMD expects its data center segment revenue to be flat. PCs, uh, the semi-custom chips as well, all to decline quarter over quarter. But the company saying that all that weakness will be offset by a stronger data center GPU ramp. And that's what investors want to hear. So I just received Lisa Su's prepared remarks. The call has just started. And what we know now is that AMD is increasing its 2024 uh, AI chip revenue from uh, $2 billion to now exceeding $3.5 So again, now it's going from uh, $3.5 It used to be $2 billion, And that's what investors want to see. Uh, the company's saying that they're seeing revenue growth and customer pull uh, and all of this. So this is just, um, I'm sure she hasn't even said it yet, but it was in the, in the uh, prepared remarks just now. And so that's what investors want to hear, Melissa. All right, uh, Christina, thank you. Christina Partsnevelas, that raise on the, uh, on the AI, that was expected to three and a half. Yeah, I mean, look yeah. at the run. I mean, think about it. Last two quarters, AMD was $135 stock two quarters ago. Everybody loved it in the earnings. It's traded down to 95. Last quarter, it was a $95 stock. Everybody hated it, and it traded up to $180. I mean, it's doubled in the last quarter or so. This first quarter guide in terms of revenue, you can strip out everything you want. That's discouraging in a mm. word, especially when you're talking about a stock that's effectively doubled over the last few months. Yeah, and it's just a different story than a NVIDIA. They're not demonstrating the sort of upside that got that stock going uh, last spring and kept it going into this year. And expectations are obviously very high with NVIDIA as the stock has rallied like 30% in a straight line again over the last month. Just do the math on that. That's a half a trillion dollars in market cap. When I think about AMD, consensus is already calling for near 50% earnings growth in calendar 2024 with only about 20% sales growth. So they just raised that number a little bit. You're just not getting the upside. And the last point I'll just make is that this is a 53% gross margin company versus NVIDIA that has upwards of 72, 73 mm -hmm. or something like that. How they're going to take share versus NVIDIA is likely on price. They're not likely to get the margin benefit that NVIDIA got over the last year and a half or so. So to Guy's point, this stock nearly doubling in the last couple months, it's all in there, people. Yeah. Uh, NVIDIA, by the way, is down one and a quarter percent on the back of AMD. Meantime, coming up, a huge lineup joining us from Miami Beach. We are digging into the state of private credit with the heads of two major Wall Street firms, Drew McKnight of Fortress, Armin Pinojian of Oak Tree Capital will join us next. And the traders who predicted the 2008 housing crisis, they are back together. They're going to give us their take on the markets. Why the guys from the big short, not so short right now. You're watching Fast Money Live from the iConnections Global Alts Conference. Back in two. What does it mean to be rich? 
Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to Fast Money, live from Miami Beach. The Fed is set to make its first rate decision of the year tomorrow as the economy has been showing signs of strength. Our next guests have insight into what is uh, doing for the credit markets, the private credit markets. We're joined now by Fortress co-CEO Drew McKnight and incoming Oak Tree co-CEO Armin Panosian. Gentlemen, great to have you with us here by the beach. Uh, Drew, I'll, I'll kick it off with you. You say that, that credit is more interesting than equities right now. Why is that? Well, I think anytime you can get paid... Um, high single digits, low double digits uh, coupons uh, and be at the top of the capital structure, your downside protection is much greater than equities and I think you're getting you know, equity-like returns. A lot of people will say everybody and their brother getting into private credit and that is of concern in and of itself that there's some sort of bubble forming. Is that the case or what would you say to that? I think the demand for private credit mm-hmm. um, actually exceeds the supply of private credit over the medium to long term. There's a lot of dry powder in private equity in search of private credit solutions. Uh, and therefore, over a medium to long-term period of time, I think that there's a big expansion opportunity in private credit. Drew, sure, we spent the last 10 minutes breaking down a bunch of earnings releases. So we're very granular. At a 30,000 feet, what do you see that's encouraging? Or maybe what do you see that's sort of scary right now? Well, I think encouraging, uh, credit markets are wide open, right? And I think the availability of credit um, is, is very healthy for the markets. That said, the cost of credit, uh, given what's happened with interest rates and credit spreads, is not cheap. And so I think the cost of that capital um, is something that does need to reflect itself both in private equity multiples, but also in public equity multiples. Armin, when you think about, again, we have this Fed meeting tomorrow, expectations for a rate move, not high at all. But as we think about March, that's going to dominate the conversation over the next month or so. Are we on the precipice of another regime shift as it relates to rates? And we've had a lot of volatility in yields over the last few years. And how do you guys think about that? Uh, It's very, very hard to predict what the Fed will do. Um, But uh, I think there's enough data to support possibly a rate cut. But it really depends on what you believe will be the case in the economy at that point to, to precipitate that rate cut. I don't think it's, you'll have to see a picture that's not that pretty for, for the Fed to move faster mm-hmm. than, than, a, um, than what would otherwise be necessary maybe mid-year. How would you characterize uh, this coming year? Is it going to be sort of a sweet spot? I mean, it seems like we've got rate cuts coming. The economy has been slowed but not halted by any, you know, according to any of the data that we see. So in terms of private credit, is that sort of like the, the Goldilocks scenario for you guys? 
Well, look, I, I think because of the contractual coupons, it is a, a, an interesting place to hide where you don't have to get the rate cuts call right, you don't mm -hmm. have to get the equity multiples call right, and still earn very healthy returns. I think what does give us some pause and some worry is the cost of capital in the real estate capital markets is still very expensive. And so I think the availability of credit in real estate, whether it's commercial or residential, like anyone who has, is trying to take out a mortgage right now, it's a lot more expensive than what it was. And so I think that is something that does give us pause. And I think a 25 basis point rate cut or a couple 25 basis point rate cuts is still very far from the cost of capital we saw in 2021. So do you see that as, I'm assuming that you see that as well in terms of the higher cost of capital in real estate. And can you sort of, you know, play that out with what's going on in commercial real estate and the concerns that surround that sector? I think the issues with commercial real estate are twofold. First of all, in commercial office properties, you have vacancies, you have a need for capital to retenant space. And the existing owners of that real estate are, are not really willing to provide that additional capital. I think the second issue is the maturity wall for commercial real estate, even outside of commercial office properties, is high and will continue to be high for several years. And with that escalated rate move over the last five years, there is going to be a need for additional equity capital or hybrid equity to fill that gap because deleveraging is necessary. Drew, how important is what's going on with China over the last six months, but more specifically over the last couple of weeks in terms of their seemingly commercial real estate and real estate problems? Look, I mean, just, just yesterday with Evergrande, I think it's it's very much top of mind. I think if you look at what's going on in that market, um, I think it it's navigating a lot because they really don't have a bankruptcy regime. You know, we invest in primarily developed markets because we're in credit and our biggest focus is needing to actually enforce contracts. And, and China is really inventing that process as we speak and you're seeing it playing out uh, on something like Evergrande. Um, I think it also affects everything we're doing. You know, we had a panel earlier, we we're talking about treasury auctions. How does that, China's a big player in our auctions. How does this affect the way they behave in these auctions? Yeah, so Armin, I'm not gonna lie. You know, you guys have been the higher for longer camp. And, and I know you said the last question you answered is like, I can't really predict rates, but like, you know, the whole idea that for rates to go down precipitously, and at one point, Fed Fund futures were pricing in five or six cuts at some point this year. We debate on this desk, what would be the impetus for that to happen? Something not good, not good for the economy, not good for risk assets, that sort of thing. On the flip side of that though, and we none of us are gonna try to predict that, higher for longer, what does that mean to you? Is it that inflation is a bit stickier, the economy is, you know, like we have unemployment that stays below 4%. How do you guys think about that? I think it's the Goldilocks scenario. Honestly, it's that there is um, GDP growth, but it's tepid. There's CPI that's sort of in line and not uh, not really problematic that needs to, uh, or, or and not need, you don't need to see a rate increase, yeah. uh, but there's no real um, catalyst to actually reduce rates. And I think that um, in being in that Goldilocks scenario for longer than expected results in being higher for longer. All right, we're going to have to leave the conversation there. Thanks, guys, so much. Always too little time. Drew McKnight, Armin Panosian, we appreciate it. Meantime, let's get another check on Alphabet. Shares are taking a leg lower right now. They are, in fact, at after-hour session lows. Let's get back to Deirdre Boster for what is pushing it lower. D. Hey, Mal, they were down as much as nearly 7%. And, you know, despite analysts' best efforts to get the management team to break out generative AI and get more details, the team there keeps talking more about incorporating it, more of what they've been doing for years, less about breaking it out as a product that it can charge for. There was also some comments around capbacks that could be making investors a little bit nervous. CFO Ruth Porat called out $11 billion in capbacks in the fourth quarter. She said, overwhelmingly, 
driven by investment in tech infrastructure with its largest component for servers, followed by data centers, aka that's GPUs, which we know um, are a little scarce and expensive. She also said that in 2024, we expect investment in CapEx will be notably larger than in 2023. So perhaps offsetting some of the efficiency measures they're taking, like the rolling layoffs we've seen this year. Mel, back to you. All right, Dee, thank you. Deidre Bosa, by the way, MetaShares are down by 2.6%. We'll continue tracking this conference call. Meantime, there's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Focusing on fintech, where our next guest sees strength and how the deal landscape is shaping up. Plus, the big short traders are back together, but they're not as short these days. Their take on the markets, economy, and more. You're watching Fast Money, live from the iConnections Global Alts Conference in Miami Beach. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money Live in Miami Beach. A look at how stocks close out the session. Mixed day in Wall Street as investors await tomorrow's Fed decision. The Dow at more than 130 points, closing at a record once again. The S&P pulling back slightly from its all-time high, and the Nasdaq down about three-tenths of 1%. And some of this morning's earnings movers, we want to get to shares of UPS sinking 8% after a revenue miss and disappointing guidance. The company also saying it will cut about 12,000 jobs. GM, meantime, heading in the opposite direction, up nearly 8% after a beat on the top and the bottom lines. The company forecasting continued strong profit this year. And a check on Walmart after hours, the company announcing a three-for-one stock split. Shares are up about a percent on the news. We've gone through this again. It doesn't change anything, but here we are up in the after-hour session. GM or UPS, your pick. UPS. I think, listen, UPS, I get it. It's UPS specific, but is it a broader tell? And in terms of unemployment rate, more layoffs in UPS in trying to reduce costs. And that's a theme we've been talking about now for four months. All right, let's get straight to FinTech here. The FinTech industry facing headwinds from higher rates and a pullback in private deal-making last year. But is the tide turning? Our next guest thinks emerging technologies could create a major opportunity in the space. Blythe Masters is founder, founding partner of Motive Partners, a specialist private equity firm investing in financial technology. Blythe. Great to have you here. Welcome to the show. Nice to be here. Thank People you. People think of fintech and they think of the names that have been crushed in the markets. Mm -hmm. um, should we be concerned about these firms? Because the bear case will say these are just financial firms and we should treat them accordingly. And if there's something bad that's going to happen in the economy, these firms will feel it even worse. Well, the interesting thing about the fintech space is uh, probably better labeled financial technology because that really describes fully what it's all about. Mm -hmm. And it's much more than just some of the high-profile, non-bank uh, challenger actors that have been harshly treated, uh, in some cases fairly so, uh, in the markets. Uh, this is a gigantic space. The vertical represents uh, almost a trillion dollars a year of spend by financial services company on technology. It's also a horizontal because people are embedding financial technology in non-financial businesses in order to enable financial activity by their customers. That's approaching over the next five years another trillion dollars of spend. 
So this is a space that's too big to ignore. It's also one where technology-driven innovation is at occurring at a furious pace. Uh, and that is something that will survive cyclical developments in interest rates and many other things. In fact, many of the companies in the space are not heavily leveraged and have business models that are relatively impervious to the ups and downs of rates, mm. uh, inflation, and other things that have affected more cyclical businesses. So there's still plenty of opportunity in this space. Well, so we, we spend a lot of time, like you know, Guy just mentioned it, um, thinking about unemployment rate and some of the trends in, 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 mm. in that we're seeing. And you know, today there was a headline, like a PayPal, for instance, is cutting 9% of the workforce, 2,500 workers. Um, think about it. That's a company that has a really good balance sheet. It trades at a really decent valuation. Um, the stock can't get out of its own way, mm. right? So are we going to continue to see businesses like that really solve towards expenses, to your point, a little bit? And should we expect to see cuts in the space continue? You know, I, I think the issue you're you're referring to is bigger than the fintech space. I mean, we're, we're uh, looking at an environment where we've had a radical change of economic conditions, interest rates, uh, inflation, and that has affected the cost of, of operating. We had a period where uh, there was significant wage inflation uh, that has meant the cost of employing people rose significant uh, increase now in interest rates, a refinancing wall that is being at least now alleviated somewhat by market expectations of future uh, rate cuts, which has meant that the capital markets for debt have reopened somewhat. So those refinancings are getting done, good news, but they're getting done at extraordinarily higher cost. And the combination of the wage inflation, the higher cost of interest is what's causing uh, layoffs in some of the larger uh, economically sensitive businesses like a PayPal and many others. You mentioned uh, others in your introduction. That is a, a phenomenon that is affecting, is a cyclical phenomenon. Um, it's not really about where the value creation in financial technology is, is coming from for the next few years, which is really much more about technological innovation uh, and new technologies being deployed, notably AI and similar. Blythe, you're absolutely in the Hall of Fame. You're a genius. And it's interesting, <laughs> Oppenheimer was the movie of the year, I guess, last year. And we have the big short guys coming on in a few minutes. And think about this. I think The Guardian did an interview with you in 08. But in looking back at credit default swaps back in the day, I mean, you were sort of at the forefront. What are your feelings about that today? I mean, I know you created them with the best of intentions, but obviously they was used in somewhat nefarious ways. Thoughts on that? Gosh, well, that's dialing the clock back a bit. Um, <laughs> first of all, uh, it would be actually uh, nice to be able to claim that I in invented credit derivatives. You it's were, not, you not were... technically accurate. Um, I, I did help uh, evolve them from a, an idea to uh, a widely used instrument. Uh, neither I nor JP Morgan ever had the idea of applying them to subprime home mm -hmm. equity uh, loans or securities, and therein was the problem. Uh, in fact, we were uh, deploying the uh, contracts more as uh, risk management tools, ironically. Um, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, the, the issue is not about the product itself so much as the way it was used. Exactly. And obviously the lessons were learned about the potential for derivatives to create contagion. Uh, and much of that was addressed in the financial reforms that uh, occurred in the aftermath of the financial, uh, financial crisis. We wish we had more time, Blythe. There's never <laughs> enough time. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to see you. Pleasure to be Hope here. Hope to see you soon. Blythe Masters. Coming up, the big short traders are back. The men who predicted the 2008 financial crisis are here to give us their take on the market, the economy, and much more. You're watching Fast Money live in Miami Beach. Back in two. Hi. How are you? Hey, Mr. Bennett. What do we have?
Let's see what you got. You smell that? What is that? What? What's that smell? A cologne? No. Opportunity. No, money. Oh, okay. I smell money. A memorable scene from the 2015 blockbuster, The Big Short. The four guys represented there are with us in Miami Beach. I moderated a panel with them earlier today here at iConnections. An interesting takeaway is this group is now expressing their bearishness differently from what you might think back in the financial crisis. With us now, Danny Moses, Steve Eisman, Vincent Daniel, and Porter Collins. And by the way, this is a TV first to have all these guys here at the same time, at the same table. So thank you guys. For being here. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. We showed a clip from the movie, so I got to ask you, and I asked you this in the panel, how much of it was true? You what do you think? Take that. What, do you, what think? do you think? The book was 100% accurate. I would say yeah. the movie was 75, 85% accurate, but the way that Adam McKay was able to explain CDOs to people the way he did with the fourth wall was amazing. There was no alligator technically coming out of the pool, but all the other <laughs> stuff I would say was pretty good. So. And the strip club scene never happened. <laughs> never happened. Of course not. Of course not. But it, is, it was you know 20 years ago almost that we, we came down here to Florida and there was all this building and there was no people. And so that's when that scene yeah. where steam came back and it, it's a problem. When so. you went there and you saw the foreclosed properties yep. and they were empty and the bills were piling yep. up, et cetera, you knew you were onto something. It was pretty obvious. Yes. Yeah. Are there any trades today that you have as much conviction in as you did back then? Steve. I mean, the one I have that is along is infrastructure. Government's going to be spending about $1.2 trillion over the next 10 years. So there are a lot of things to do. I mean, I wouldn't call that as big a conviction story as the, the Big Short. I mean, the Big Short was taking on basically Western civilization <laughs> <laughs> and everybody telling us we were lunatics. This is a more relaxed investment story, but I think it's a great one. Things have changed a lot in the financial system. Have they changed to the point where there won't be a trade like that? Well, right now, the Fed's on the case. Whereas right. when we think about what happened during the Great Recession, there was a famous line by Michael Burry, as I knew more than Alan Greenspan. He wasn't lying. He did. Uh, the Fed has wisened up, and now the ability to have the price discovery, adverse price discovery like we did back then, would be very, very difficult. Right. It won't be allowed. I mean, Silicon Valley lasted 24 hours. Yep. Exactly. That was it. it was but the only other time where the Fed was offsides was in 21, 22, where they were way behind the curve on inflation. And that was a time where short sellers could really profit because they knew the Fed was was offsides. And so, you know, that's not the case today. You know, the, 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 the Fed has four or 500 basis points of cuts in their back pocket if something bad happens. So that's what as a short seller, you're, you're, you're fearful of that. So if something bad goes ha- if that happens, they just cut rates pretty quickly. So. We know that it's a much more difficult business to be a short seller these days. Um, so I'm wondering, Danny, in terms of finding that trade, how, how have you changed your approach? Well, the four of us traded pre-financial crisis, right. during financial crisis, and we've all traded post, not necessarily together, Porter Vinny more, more than the four of us. But I think there's still bits and pieces of it alive. What do I mean? Back then, there was glimpses of you know tech companies that or there were companies posing as tech companies that were just consumer finance companies. You see those pieces today. You see Upstart and Affirm and those. And we've seen that game before. And we know how that ends. These are specialty finance companies. And when credit comes 
back to haunt them, their balance sheeting now, the same way the mortgage companies did, they couldn't get it off their balance sheet. Those are the things that I look for. And yes, these are smaller companies that maybe not the rest of the you know, investment community can get on, but these are things. So I see glimpses of it always. Yeah. So I have a different approach. I was born Jewish and I've converted to long only. <laughs> <laughs> I literally just made that up right here. That was my epiphany yeah, about, about that question. Needlepoint that yes, into a pillow right, or thank something. You. Yeah. Um, uh, but but it's true. Your your life has changed, and we, people were remarking about this: how zen you are, how happy you are. I know it's kind of You're shocking. You're not the guy in the movie. That's no, for no, sure. No. That, I that mean, guy was very 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 angry, and yes. I think the movie accurately pre- portrayed captured, your anger. He totally captured. I kind of miss that guy a little yeah. bit. This is yeah. I'm not I, used I, to. I, I don't miss him. <laughs> <laughs> but Steve can go zero to bear, pretty, right. as we all can, pretty quickly, and that's the thing. If times change, we change. Yeah. Right. So, right. Let's get to some of the highest conviction trades you do have right now, and I'll toss the question to you guys. Well, you know, as a short seller, you, you're, you're loath to mention shorts, but, you know, one of the, our, our best shorts this year and, and uh, has been Tesla. Even over the, over the past three, uh, three years, Tesla's been a big underperforming stock, and so I think they really have problems with sales, and, and, you know, one of our best traits is calling BS on a company, and I think eventually the market will come around to the fact that it's really an auto company with, you know, not great not great tech, you know, all, everyone else is catching up to them. And so I think that's, it has been an underperformer, will continue to be underperformer. For so many people though, they want a short Tesla and they've gotten just their shirts ripped oh, yeah. off. Yep. So how did you manage that trade to well, make that a profitable one? But you know, over the last, again, over the last three three years, it's been a, it's been a great short, right? And, and it, it got crushed in 22. Mm-hmm. And it, yes, it bounced back last year and, um, you know, bad Q4 earnings helped that. So right. yeah. it really started working when the TAM, the amount of cars that they mm-hmm. could sell or the growth rates that people were expecting, it's just not coming to fruition. And so as a result, you have to ask yourself the question, why do I own this thing that's trading at such high multiples that don't have the growth rates that commensurate to back it up? Right. You're also short UPS, which is in the news today. Yeah. Yes. Did you cover that or not, is not, there more to come? There's more to come. I think it, it's, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, you could see it with the labor costs and the, the, the weak volumes. And, you know, I, I think that's going you know, to take time to play out here. So, yeah. yeah. Your biggest short is in fintech. It's the the companies that you mentioned, Affirm and Upstart. Upstart, yeah, Upstart yeah almost five times book. Um, again, it's a specialty finance company. So they turned into a storage company instead of a moving company. They're no, no longer able to sell all the loans that they're originating. And cloud-based AI, all that stuff, they can put any name they want on it. It's a lending company. And so eventually these things will underperform. They don't make money. So I, I think it's going to be a really good short from here. You can Old be. Steve would have loved that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I would have loved that. And, and I was but I've converted, say, but you're, so no. But you're now happy, Steve. I'm happy. But aren't I have nothing in- against that company. <laughs> not, not for it, but nothing against it. Yeah. But are there pockets in the market that concern you? Where the old Steve, you can feel him coming back, rising I mean, look, from within? I, I have a very simple view of the U.S. economy. 70% of the U.S. economy is consumer-driven. As long as the consumer is healthy, mm-hmm. it's fine. And as, you know, credit quality, while it deteriorated for a while, seems to have stopped. Capital One said that they think delinquencies have peaked. Consumer still has money, has jobs, wages are still going up. Don't worry, be happy. I mean, that's until it changes. But as of now, it's not changing. You know, I guess the one concern is that people are pretty euphoric, yeah. like universally. Yeah. Like, go around this conference, there's a lot of people that are bullish, right? And so that's the one thing that concerns me. Like, you know, no one's really that scared, right? And no, that's at all. a big risk, right? at least in risk. the near term, is complacency. But it's in terms of another amount. big short, that, I mean, you can, you can believe that people are too euphoric. That's diff- That's a but, short term, yeah. you know. Yeah. But. I mean, look, our, our expertise is credit mm-hmm. to the financial system. And as long as credit quality is okay, there's, there's no 
you know, big drama coming. Think uh, about though, the whole issue with commercial real estate. We saw, we've seen bits and pieces of it, and it's an issue. There's over a trillion dollars coming due to be refinanced over the next couple of years. For some reason, the moral hazard in the world believes the Fed will bail us out, and they probably will. They'll have some other TALP 2.0, they'll have a program for commercial real estate loans, and they probably will, but that, I think people are too complacent in that as well, because we've seen fits and starts. So. Right. They had, the, the markets weren't able to clear, right, like they, they were in the past. Nothing traded last year. There was no volumes in commercial mm -hmm. real estate, and so that's one of the reasons you haven't seen problems. I think all of us will be yeah. more concerned if and when, and it's a real big of an if, if the Fed all of a sudden has to pivot once again to being in the tightening bias, uh, then everyone here starts to freak out. Right. So. We, we got to leave it here. Thank you so much, guys. That was fun. Great. Yeah, thank I you. hope thank you guys you. had fun with your reunion. Well, we yeah, did. Thank you. Great <laughs> to be here. <laughs> Coming up, Starbucks on the move after reporting results. We got the details from that quarter. Next, and the search for the fountain of youth, venture capital legend Alan Patrickoff and a biotech all-star Jim Mellon will join us. You're watching Fast Money Live from the iConnections Global Alts Conference. We are back in two. Welcome back to Miami in Fast Money. We got a big day for earnings. It continues with Starbucks this afternoon. That stock is up over 3% despite missing estimates on both sales and earnings. Just got guidance from the company. Kate Rogers got all the details. Kate. Hey, Melissa, we'll start with Starbucks missing on the top and bottom lines and with lower comps than expected across the board, despite what CEO Lachsman Rasman called a highly successful holiday season. In North America, U.S. comps increased 5% versus estimates of up 5.8%. International comps increasing 7%. That's far less than the 13.2% growth anticipated. In China, comps were up 10%. Now, on the call, the CEO said the company was hit with some unexpected headwinds beginning in November, adding, quote, we saw negative impacts to our business in the Middle East. Second, events in the Middle East also had impact in the U.S., driven by misperceptions about our position. Our most loyal customers remained loyal and, in fact, increased their frequency of spend in the quarter, but we did see a softening of U.S. traffic. And finally, he added there was a slower-than-expected recovery in China, driven by a more cautious consumer there. He added Starbucks is very confident in China in the long term, but the market's kind of going through a transition now with competition that will shake out over time. And as you mentioned, some change uh, for guidance here. They revised their full year outlook for revenue and comps. So revenues now for the full year will be in the range of 7 to 10 percent. That's down from the 10 to 12 percent previously given. Full year U.S. and global comps in a range now of 4 to 6 percent. That's revised down from a range of 5 to 7 percent. China comp growth of low single digits revised from a range of uh, 4 to 6 percent, Melissa. But as you said, the stock is higher by more than 3 percent now. Back over to you. Kate, thanks. Kate Rogers. Why is the stock up then? Every metric I looked, they missed. Yeah. I mean, the good news, I guess, it's that it's still a U.S. story in terms of revenue. So the international miss was not good at all, but you can say, okay, it's not an international story. Uh, margins in line, better than a year ago, which I guess is good. And I guess people are looking at sort of the revenue number, which wasn't bad. But I got to tell you something. The only really thing that I'm looking at, valuation, at least you can wrap your head around it 19 times or so, 20 times, and maybe it's a bit of a relief rally. But the quarter, just looking at it, was not particularly good. 
Um, by the way, AMD shares are down by more than 6%. Microsoft is still off. We're on those conference calls. We're bringing you any guidance, especially from Microsoft, as it comes. What is the question that you want answered, though, from either of these companies? Yeah, I mean, look, what was the kind of the sell-through of these co-pilot products? They announced mm -hmm. the pricing, you know, a couple quarters ago. And again, you know, the stock, to Guy's point, is trading 36 times this year, 31 times next. The stock has gained a trillion dollars in market cap, and we know all of that data. So if they can't basically, um, you know, come in better than people are expecting, the stock's going down. All right, coming up, are we closing in on a cure for aging? Our next guest thinks we are on the cusp of several exciting breakthroughs to revolutionize longevity. Legendary investor Alan Patrickoff and Juvenescence co-founder Jim Mellon will join us right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. So much attention has been lavished on the boom in obesity and diabetes drugs recently, but our next guests are shifting their focus toward curing, curing aging and helping people live fuller, healthier, longer lives. Joining us now is Juvenescence co-founder and deputy chairman Jim Mellon and legendary investor Alan Patrickoff. Gentlemen, great to have you with us. I saw you earlier today on a panel. Um, Alan, I'll kick it off with you. You're almost 90. And you expect don't, to live to 114. Yeah, don't give away my secrets on camera. <laughs> <laughs> Although I did say it in my book, No Red Lights, last year, that I was going to live to 114. 114. Yes. And yep. is it going to be because of, you mentioned positive attitude, but also the drug discoveries that people like Jim are investing in? I think drug discoveries are obviously going to keep increasing every year. We're coming with new developments in every area. But additionally, I have a positive attitude. I take care of myself. I do a lot of exercise. I walked four miles this morning, which is very short. But we're here down in my sunny Miami. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I really believe it. And as you know, I got married last month. Yeah. And I live a life working every single day. And that helps to keep you with a very positive attitude, and I'm going to get there. Yeah, uh, I promised my new wife that I would make it 24 more years. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been worth it, right? <laughs> exactly. He ran the marathon, by the way, two years ago, went to Burning Man, so did all these things that a, a young person would do. Um, Jim, in terms, you're a biotech investor, effectively. Yeah. What are some of the most promising things that you are excited about in your pipeline? Well, the first thing to say is that we're about 10 years away from having drugs that will actually keep us healthier for longer and make us live longer. Ten so years. we've just got to hang on in there. And so in the 14 years that Alan, uh, 24 years, yes. sorry, that Alan has uh, left, he's uh, got plenty of time to, to do that. So it's, it's going to take a bit of time, but money is coming into the sector. And in our case, we have a very promising drug for Alzheimer's mm -hmm. um, because that's the biggest issue of our times. You know, cardiovascular disease, obesity, diabetes and so forth are being addressed, the things that normally kill people, but Alzheimer's is the one thing we should all worry about. And so we have a drug that will shortly be in clinic here in the United States. And uh, I'm very optimistic about that because the people I work with are ex very experienced drug developers. And the second one is something derived from the Amish uh, community where a certain genetic mutation that 10% of them have enables those people to live 10 years longer than the average. Wow. And we've taken that and we're using it for fibrosis and we think it will have a big effect in longevity as well for the general population, not just the Amish population. So it's called PI-1 inhibition. So watch out for that. So two drugs about to go in the clinic, um, super exciting. 
Alan, when you think about what Jim just had to say about the excitement in and around Alzheimer's, and you think about how the markets have seized on these anti-obesity drugs, and if you think about Lilly and Novo Nordisk, a combined nearly $1 trillion in market cap, we've really never seen that in the public markets in big pharma. Do you think Alzheimer's or some of these other things that Jim just mentioned, do they have the potential to become these sorts of megatrends like we're seeing with these obesity drugs? First of all, let me say that I have a fund called Primetime Partners, and we don't invest in drugs or anything that requires FDA approval, so I'm not promoting a drug. Uh, I can personally envision my wife, before I married, just got married, my previous wife, who passed away three years ago, passed away from Alzheimer's after having it for 12 years, and I saw that whole decline. Uh, If you had a cure for Alzheimer's, I don't think there's any end to how big it could be. I mean, if Ozembic and these other comparable drugs are producing the kind of revenues they are in a very short period of time, everybody is going to want to prevent a neurological decline. And it's not just Alzheimer's, it's uh, Parkinson's and senility in general. So uh, get ready for a ride. I, I have no way of valuing those two drug companies, but. Uh, and I'm skeptical of how soon we're going to have a cure. I think we, all we've had so far are encouraging things for early onset of the disease. Uh, we have, interestingly, uh, one of our investments called Isaac Health uh, is solving the, not solving the problem, addressing the problem. Of the, there is a shortage of neurologists in this country. You can't try to get an appointment for a neurologist. I went through it, I know. Uh, and they're now trying to deal with people who are potential or having Alzheimer's and deal with them through telemedicine and quasi uh, a neurologist in, a, in several layers to accomplish a shortage uh, in the meantime until they find a cure. Jim, to the extent that you can answer this question, what pharma big biotech companies out there did you see that are sort of on the cusp potentially of doing the things we were just talking about? I think the only one that's making positive efforts in this respect is Regeneron. Um, which is a sort of um, large but not huge uh, uh, pharma company, but all of them are looking at it. But let's put this in perspective. $2 billion a year is spent on uh, anti-aging, if you want to call it that in the broad sense, and $200 billion around the world is spent on pharma research. So it's, at the moment, it's a very small trickle of money. But it's the most important thing of our times, because for the first time ever, it's possible to intervene in the fundamental biology of humans to keep them alive for longer and healthier. When does big pharma catch on? Um, As soon as there's a positive trial of some sort. And uh, so the trials are underway now. There's about 200 longevity companies, most of them in the United States, as you would expect. Um, About 50, I I would say, are are legit, you know, companies that are potentially investable. But all of them have the big challenge that you can't... uh, stay in business for 40 years to see if your mm-hmm. drug works. So you have to have a near-term commercial application. Right. And so for us, it's fibrosis with Pi-1. Um, and with Alzheimer's, it's obvious that we're trying to stop the progression of Alzheimer's. And I think we've got a good chance of being successful. But until that time, remember, we have a increasing proportion of the population sure. who are aging who are going to be over 60, over 65, 100. We've got to take care. We've yeah. got to take care of them. Yeah, yeah. And that's Absolutely. where that's where I'm focused on. Yeah. Doing anything, products, services to take care of older people. Alan and, and Jim, thank you. Thank you. Jim. Up next, final trades. Thanks for watching Fast Money live from Miami Beach. Mad Money is up next. 
All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.